So if you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 14. The title of this morning's sermon is, Show Us the Father. Show Us the Father. And we're continuing in our verse-by-verse study through this amazing gospel, the gospel of John. And this morning, 7 through 14, of chapter 14. And here's what the Lord Jesus says. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father." Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning, and we pray that you would enlighten our minds to understand, and that you would strengthen our inner man today as we pour over the words of Christ, desperately wanting to understand them in their context and in their application to our lives today, that we would see Christ, that we would see the Father, and we pray that you would do a mighty work of faith in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, needless to say, there are many people in this world who are crying out for a father, for someone to to show them the father. And our mandate from heaven as believers is to show them the father. And we are to do that by introducing them to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And once they meet Jesus Christ, then they will be able to see the Father. Some individuals cannot comprehend the goodness of the Father because they only consider the poor example of their earthly father who may have let them down. Many kids in America have grown up without a father at all. According to some studies, 24 million kids are 20, or excuse me, 34% of all children in the United States live in a home without their father present. That's one out of every three children in America grows up without a father. And children who come from fatherless homes account for all kinds of difficult statistics, such as 63% of youth suicides, 70% of juvenile in-state operated institutions. I'm talking again about statistics about children who are from fatherless homes. They account for 71% of pregnant teenagers, 71% of all high school dropouts, 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers, 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger, 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders, 85% of all youths sitting in prisons, 90% of all homeless and runaway children. Well, what a shame. As Christians, we are to represent the true Father who is God, through the person of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. 
And the only hope for the world in any of these statistics that I just read to you is the Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, the world can have a proper perspective of what a father really is. Through Jesus, the world can see God as a giver. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Through Jesus, the world can see God as good. Psalm 118, verse 1, O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Through Jesus, the world can see God as merciful. Luke 178, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. Through Jesus, the world can see God as forgiving. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And through Jesus, the world can see God as love. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The world needs to see the Father. The world needs to know the Father as he really is. Those without a father need to know that there is a God in heaven who is a father to the fatherless. He is a shelter for the homeless. He is a protector of the weak. He is a provider for the poor. I wonder if you know him this morning. He is a refuge for the refugee. He provides safety for the vulnerable. He gives food to the hungry. He is a sanctuary for the alien. Do you know him today? He is a light in the midst of darkness. He is a sure promise for those who've been lied to. He is constant in the midst of the storm. He is a rock in the crashing waves. Tell me if you know him today. He gives rest to the weary. He gives strength to the feeble. He gives love to the unlovely. He makes something beautiful out of ashes. He is the healer of the sick. He gives might to the powerless. Do you know this, Father? He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of Moses and Joshua. He's the God of David and Solomon. He's the God of Elijah and Elisha. He's the God of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. He's the God of Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. He's the God of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's the God of Joseph and Mary. Good, good, good is our God. He is a father who is good because he is a father who loved his son, who sent his son to die for sinners like you and me. And he is a father who raised Jesus from the dead and he has set him in his right hand and God desires a relationship with all who will come to him by faith. But the only way to get to this good, good father is through the son. And the only way to know the father is through the son. And the only way to the father is through Jesus. Now get this, the reason that you can only come to the Father through Jesus is because Jesus and the Father are one. They are one in essence, one in glory, and one in deity. The reason that Jesus can show us the Father is because Jesus is God in the flesh. And today, I want to talk to you about how Jesus shows us the Father. And as Jesus shows us the Father, Jesus reveals his glory. Jesus reveals the greater works that his disciples will do. And Jesus reveals the guarantee of answering our prayers that are prayed in his name. 
Let's look at each one of these revelations one at a time. The first heading, if you're taking notes, is this. Number one, Jesus reveals the glory of the Father. And that first blank there is, let's talk for a moment about knowing the Father. Knowing the Father. Again, verse 7, Jesus says to his disciples, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, in John 14, Jesus is encouraging the troubled hearts of his disciples. They are in the upper room taking part of the Last Supper. And Jesus is imparting truth and giving his final words of instruction and encouragement before he goes to the cross. And Jesus exhorts the disciples to believe in God. He tells them that he is in, that he is in the Father and that the Father is in him. And he tells them that his, in his Father's house are many rooms... And he tells his disciples that he goes to prepare a place for them by dying on the cross and entering into heaven before his disciples or anyone that would be in Christ. And Jesus tells us that he will come again to take them to himself. Jesus tells the disciples that they know the way. If you remember from last week, Thomas asks, how can we know the way? And Jesus answers that question by the famous verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he is not a way, but he is the way. The way to be reconciled with God is through Christ. Jesus says, I am the truth. There are not many truths that will get you to heaven, but only one truth. There is only one mediator between God and man. There is only one name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And the truth is we must repent and believe in Jesus as the only way, as the only truth, and as the only life. Regeneration comes through no other. To be born again you must believe in Jesus. To be born again, you must, according to Romans 10:9, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and then you will be saved. Jesus emphatically says that no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is a message that the world hates. This is a message that the church loves because it's the message of love through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to heaven. You can't get there through the teachings of the Pope. You cannot get there through the teachings of Muhammad or of Buddha or of Joseph Smith or of Ellen G. White or of the Dalai Lama. And Jesus says here in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Make no doubt about it. This is a gentle rebuke from Jesus to his disciples. If the disciples had fully understood and grasped all that Jesus had taught them, then they would have already known the Father. But let's also remember that the Holy Spirit had not yet been sent. And one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is to enlighten the mind of every believer so that we can understand and apply the teachings of Christ. What does it mean to know the Father? Here in verse 7, the word know, this same word is used 141 times in the Gospel of John. 
but it does not always carry the same meaning in each context. In fact, there are four different levels of knowing according to John. The lowest level is simply knowing a fact. The next level is to understand the truth behind that fact. However, you can know the fact and you can know the truth behind it, but still be lost in your sins. You may say that you know there is a God and that he sent his son Jesus into the world. But just knowing that will not save you. There is a difference between knowing there is a God and knowing God. And so the third level of knowing introduces a relationship. To know someone means to believe in a person and to become related, in this case, in a spiritual relationship to him. To know that person and to become in relationship to them. And this is how it's used in John 17, 3, when Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This means that you come into an intimate relationship with the Father through the Son. This intimacy is also pictured in places like Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, where the scripture says that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. The fourth use of the word know means to have a deeper relationship with a person, a deeper communion. And it was at this level that Paul was referring to when he wrote to the church in Philippi, Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. Paul is saying that in order for you to attain resurrection from the dead, for you to receive eternal life, you must know Christ in this way. You must know the power of his resurrection. And you must also be willing to share in his sufferings and to become like him in his death. To know Christ, you must be willing to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow him. To really know the Father, you must really know the Son. And if you really know the Son, then you do know the Father. Jesus encourages his disciples with this promise. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Kind of like last week when he said to Thomas, you do know the way. Now he's saying to Philip, you do know the Father. It's me. Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that leads us to our next blank. Let's talk for a moment about seeing the Father. Verses 8 and 9. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, Thomas may have been satisfied with Jesus showing the way as Jesus revealed himself to Thomas. But now we're looking at Philip, and Philip doesn't seem to be yet quite satisfied. And so he takes the question a little further, and he, he wants to see the Father. He's like, all right, we see the Son, we see Jesus, but I want to see the Father. And I believe that Philip is simply describing an insatiable desire that every Christian has to see God. There's something about becoming a Christian where you're like, all right, I'm done with the fluff. I'm done with all of the fairy tales. I just want to see God. I want to see God work. And Philip is saying, let us see God and we will be satisfied. We will be content. Now, I would say that this is not a sinful question. 
Nothing wrong with Philip saying, I just want to see God. I, I want to see God. It, it, it's, it's, it's not enough, Philip is saying, to see anything else. I really want to see God. It's not as though Philip is looking for money or looking for power or looking for position to be satisfied. He just wants to see God. Wasn't this the desire of Moses in Exodus 33 when Moses said in verse 18, please show me your glory? And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you and you will proclaim before you and you will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And then God says this, but he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And that passage in Exodus 33, God tells Moses that he will show him his goodness, that he will show him his graciousness, but no one can see the face of God and live. And so what has happened throughout the Old Testament has been what theologians call theophanies. And a theophany is a manifestation of God that is tangible to the human senses. It is not a full revelation of God since God is spirit and God says no one can see his face and live. He also uses that, that uh, kind of language to describe him as having a face, but God doesn't really have a face. Anthropomorphological language is what we call it. And so Philip here is thinking maybe that he would like to see at least some manifestation of God, like maybe Moses saw the backside of God, or maybe you remember when Samson's parents in Judges 13, and that angel had, had shown up to them to announce Samson's birth, and at that time, Samson's dad, Manoah, took a young goat and offered it on a rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching where Judges 13, 20 says, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame from the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. And then we read that Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. So maybe Philip is asking for an experience like that. I just want to, I want to see the Father in that unique way, a theophany. Or maybe Peter, or excuse me, Philip uh, was thinking about Isaiah and his experience as he describes seeing a vision of God, Isaiah 6, 1 through 4, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke." Or how about Ezekiel's vision? In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1, in the 30th year, in the fourth month of the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by Chabar Canal, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. And as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with the brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, 
as it were, gleaming metal. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a will on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of beryl, and the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a will within a will. If you've ever read any of those passages, somewhere you've been like, man, what is that? It's a, it's a theophany. It's a tangible expression of the appearance of God in a way that a human can relate at least to some degree. And these were all amazing descriptions of glorious, majestic, and yes, even mysterious visions of God. And so maybe Philip grew up watching Star Wars or the Avengers and he needed some sci-fi to get him going, right? Maybe Philip was a charismatic who desperately wants to see more signs and visions. But here is Jesus' answer to Philip's request. What does he say back in John 14, 9? Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father. Jesus' simple answer, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Sometimes we think we want to see more, but Jesus is enough. Sometimes we want to be wowed, but Jesus is enough. Sometimes we want to be entertained, but Jesus is enough. And Jesus spent three years revealing himself to the world and to his disciples. And here, as clear as anywhere, Jesus is making a bold statement affirming his divinity. If you have seen and heard Jesus, then you have seen and heard the Father. My friends, look no further than to the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to see more of God? Look to Jesus Christ and how he reveals himself to us through his holy word. And so here we're looking at knowing the Father, we're looking at seeing the Father, and then that next blank says, believing in the Father. Verses 10 and 11, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or, it, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So what Jesus is saying... And these two verses is that in order to believe in God, you need to believe in my words and you need to believe in my works. That's what he's saying. You need to believe in my words, what I'm saying to you, and you need to believe in the works themselves. Now, the grammar of the original language here in this first verse of these two verses, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me, indicates that Jesus expects a positive answer. In other words, he is saying, surely you do believe in what I am saying. And part of the cure for the disciples' confusion and their turmoil will come from believing in God and believing in Christ. And when Jesus speaks, he's not speaking independently, but he's speaking as an extension of the Godhead. There is no difference in what God the Father would say and in what God the Son would say and in what God the Holy Spirit would say. In John 7, verse 16, Jesus says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
Jesus says in John 12, 49, For I have not spoken to my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Then Jesus says, Listen, if you're not going to believe in my words, I've already told you, I'm sent from the Father. Everything I'm teaching you is from the Father. I and the Father are one. These are all the words that I've given you. But if you will not believe in my words, at least believe on account of the works themselves, which is why the Gospel of John highlights the seven signs that we've looked at already, how Jesus had healed the, uh, or turned the water into wine, chapter 2, right? Jesus healed the royal official's son. Jesus had also healed the paralytic at Bethesda. Jesus had fed the 5,000. Jesus had walked on the water. He had calmed the sea. He had healed the man born blind. And Jesus had raised, raised Lazarus from the dead. And each one of these signposts were pointing to the fact that he is God, And that he and the Father are one. And he's telling them, look, if you're having trouble just believing my words, don't forget about these signs. Each one of these were considered as signs pointing to the deity of Christ. John 5.36, Jesus says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus says almost the same thing in John 10, 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. Now, in the world of apologetics, which is kind of like defending the faith or explaining to non-believing skeptics why it is that you're a Christian, in the world of apologetics, there is a tension between presuppositional apologetics and evidentialist apologetics, okay? Presuppositional and evidential. And just in short, the presuppositional approach presumes that the skeptic already knows that there is a God and he is suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness and he can only be saved if God sovereignly opens the heart of the sinner by grace and causes him to be born again by the preaching of the gospel, You could look at that in Romans 1 and in Romans 9. Now, the evidentialist, on the other hand, brings evidence to the skeptic and challenges them to believe based on the evidence itself. In this passage, Jesus perfectly balances these two approaches by commanding that they believe in him because of his words but also acknowledges that there is more sufficient proof as well in his works. Now, while I would call myself a presuppositionalist, I would also say that God uses creation to point to the cross. And Jesus did miracles to point to his person and his message. And without the greatest miracle, which was the resurrection, there would be no saving faith. And all of the other miracles that Jesus did was to point to the fulfillment of Scripture, to the undeniable power of God, and to impart faith to those who would repent and believe. The question really boils down to you this morning, though, because we're not having a full-out debate about whether or not you're a presuppositionalist or if you're an evidentialist, but the question really boils down to this. Do you believe? You know there is a God from looking at creation, and there is no way that this whole world happened by accident. There is an intelligent designer, and he is the God of the Bible. 
And you know that there's a difference between right and wrong because you were created in the image of God and you have a conscience. And that conscience, that spiritual part of your inner man, gives you the ability in and of itself to discern a difference between what's right and what's wrong. The problem is, you can't be saved through creation, and you can't be saved through your conscience. You can only be saved through Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way to know God. And you cannot know God through creation alone or through your conscience alone, but you can know God through Christ alone. And so let me invite you this morning to let go of your sin. Let me encourage you to let go of your pride. Let me encourage you to let go of your tradition. Let me encourage you to let go of your man-made religion. Let me encourage you to let go of your ego and your own opinions and come bow the knee before Jesus Christ and believe in Him and in Him alone. Only Christ can save you. He loves you and He died for you and He became your substitute and He took on your sin debt and He paid the price in full. Will you come to Him today? Because if you're coming to Christ, you're coming to the Father. And if you think you know God, but you're not coming through Christ, then you've never seen God. And so we're connecting this morning as Jesus so masterfully is that He's revealing through His person the glory of the Father. Now, not only did Jesus reveal the glory of the Father, but secondly, I want you to see how these are tied together. It's really interesting here. Number two, Jesus reveals the greater works of the disciples. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Your next blank is greater in extent greater in extent this is really an astonishing promise that jesus gives here in verse 12 and this is not a mistake jesus makes sure to get our attention by saying truly truly or verily verily in the old king james he's saying listen up i'm about to tell you something that's very important and here is the promise not only do those who believe in christ get to be where Jesus is, but they get to do what Jesus does. I mean, he says here in verse 12, they will also do the works that I do. So not only do they believe in Christ, but they get to do what he does. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do these same works. Now, it is true that the disciples did many miracles. In fact, after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit happened at what we call the day of Pentecost, where the disciples became a spiritual force like never before. And in Acts 5, 12 through 16, we read things like this. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, and none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that, even, uh, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow may fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. 
The fact that Jesus said you will do the works that I do is also confirmed by Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This passage in Hebrews is saying that God bore witness to his work through Christ and through the signs and wonders and the miracles of the apostles after they had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Back to John 14, 12. Jesus doesn't only say that you will do the works that I do. He also says greater works than these will he do. Jesus actually says that believers will not only do the works, but greater works. How could this possibly be? What does Jesus mean by this? Well, I can tell you what I don't think he means. I don't think he means that any singular disciple will perform greater in number the works that Christ did. Remember John 21, 25. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So I don't think it means that one singular disciple like Peter or Paul, any of the apostles, would do more in number. Neither do I think that this means that any one disciple would perform greater in power than the works that Jesus did. Think the feeding of the 5,000, the calming of the Sea of Galilee, raising Lazarus from the dead after he had been in the grave for four days. Not to mention Jesus taking up his own life again at the resurrection. So I don't think it means greater in number, and I don't think it means greater in power. I believe that Jesus is not referring to a greater number of miracles or a greater demonstration of power than Jesus' miracles. I simply think that he means that there will be a greater extension of Christ's works throughout the church. God's presence dwelling in the person of Christ is now dwelling in every believer who belongs in Christ in the church. And those who are in the church, meaning they're in Christ, they're born-again believers, the church is many. Jesus was one. He was one person who was limited in ways by time and space. But the church is made up of countless numbers of believers over two millennia. Uh, what I do think Jesus means that it's greater in extent, and your second blank there says, and that it's greater in evangelism, that it's greater in extent. In other words, it can spread further and it's greater in its emphasis, not necessarily being outer works of miraculous power, but the inner miracle of the transforming gospel, saving a dead soul. I believe that Jesus is not necessarily here referring to physical miracles. While the apostles did miracles, for sure, it has not been common in the practice of believers throughout the ages. I believe that when Jesus says greater works than these, he's also referring to the spiritual miracle of salvation, that because of the millions of Christians who know the gospel and who preach the gospel, there will be the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus never left Palestine, and Jesus's ministry only lasted three years. The ministry of the church, however, has been able to go far and wide and to preach the gospel of Christ throughout the world. 
Jesus says, Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Jesus said in Mark 13, 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And that clarion call of the gospel is to be brought by the beautiful feet of Christians into the highways and the byways. And so we must remain committed as a church to local and international missions until the whole world is heard with their own ears about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is why Romans 10, 14, and 15 says, How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in the one in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jesus' message was clear throughout his ministry, and we are able to still proclaim that same message and to extend Christ's work and to see the world come to know him. Jesus is prophesying worldwide mission work. Jesus is for sending missionaries into the 1040 window. Jesus wants us all to be involved in going and in sending and in praying, as well as evangelizing right here, right now, with the relationships that you have with those around you. And all of this is happening because Jesus is going to the Father. It's only when Jesus goes to the Father that his work on earth is done. And at that moment, Jesus sends, when he went to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit, his promise, to empower the church to continue his work. That's what I'm saying to you this morning, church, is if you're a Christian, you are doing greater works than Christ. Not in the sense of individual number or of power, but in the sense of spreading further and wider together, you're helping extend the ministry of Jesus Christ beyond natural boundaries. Are you willing to take risks in order to propel the gospel of Jesus Christ forward? Are you praying for God to give you greater courage and evangelism and a greater confidence that God really does change lives? Jesus reveals the glory of the Father Jesus reveals the greater works of the disciples. Third, Jesus reveals the guarantee of answering prayer. Look at verses 13 and 14. Your next blank says, pray in a way that is consistent with God's will. John 14, verses 13 and 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Prayer is talking to God. Prayer should always be filled with praise and adoration. Prayer ought to be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. Prayer should be filled with expressions of worship and awe for God in all of his glory. Prayer should also be about petitioning God. The Bible commands that we pray without ceasing. The Bible commands that we pray at all times. The Bible says that we ought to be praying in the spirit as opposed to praying in the flesh. And the Bible also says that we are to be, again, petitioning God. Jesus had said in Matthew 7, 7, Ask, and it will be given unto you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, 
and the door will be opened. He always invites us in to a petitioning in our prayers. And we are to make our petitions known, Philippians 4, 6, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But when we pray and we petition God, we're not to treat God as a genie who can grant our every wish or as a butler who forever lives to serve us with the conveniences of life. Rather, when we pray, we want to pray in a way that is consistent with God's will. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. Notice how Jesus says again, whatever you ask in my name. And so these three subpoints of this last heading are really answering the question, what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Well, it means, number one, to pray in a way that's consistent, as you've already filled in that blank, with the will of God. When we pray, we want to pray in a way that's consistent with that. That, That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It's not a magical word tacked onto the end of every prayer. In fact, you can actually pray in Jesus' name without saying in Jesus' name. Did you know that? I remember as a kid growing up, first time I heard somebody pray, and then they just said amen. I'm like, ah, 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 you forgot to say in Jesus' name. And then the individual reminded me, like, hey, actually, you don't have to say that. But you know what? I still like to say that. For me, it's just helpful reminder. I know that we can sometimes say things without meaning it. We need to be careful. And I'm not against you if you've made it your habit specifically not to say in Jesus' name, all right? Even though I won't like you as much, right? But (laughs) I I just think that there's something about saying that that's a regular reminder, okay? That's a personal preference. But what I am saying is that praying in Jesus' name doesn't mean that you actually say it. It just means that you mean it, right? That you understand that without Christ, you have no access to God, that you understand that whatever you're praying has to be in accordance with the will of God, which is revealed in the word of God. And so I actually like saying in Jesus' name in most of my prayers because it reminds me that I am only a Christian because of Christ, and I can only offer this prayer because of Christ, and because of Christ, I have every confidence that because Jesus died for me and because he's given me access to the Father, that he's going to answer my prayer. And without Christ, there's no access to the throne room of heaven. Without Christ, I cannot approach God on my own. Christ is the mediator. And Christ is also pleading on my behalf. Christ is my Savior who ever lives to intercede for me. When Jesus taught on many occasions that we should pray in his name, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide for whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John sixteen twenty three. in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. John sixteen twenty four. until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And so let me ask you, when you pray, do you pray for things that are according to your will or things that are in accordance with God's will? When you pray, are you thinking, how can God make my life more convenient for me while on earth? Or are you thinking, what else does God want to teach me and how can I grow and be more like Jesus in this situation? Make sure that your prayers are more than just grocery lists, wish lists, or only self-focused lists. 
When you pray, pray in faith that God will answer your prayers when you are praying in Jesus' name. And so to pray in Jesus' name means that you're praying in a way that's consistent with God's will. And it also means that you're praying in a way, your next blank, that acknowledges your utter dependence on God. There ought to be a brokenness in prayer. Prayer is not a time to exalt yourself, but to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Prayer is not a time for you to toot your own horn like the Pharisee did, but it is a time for you to beat your chest like the sinner did. Prayer is not a time to recite your accomplishments. It is a time to remember God's faithfulness to you throughout your life. Prayer shows utter dependence upon God. Prayer shows that you cannot do it on your own. Prayer shows that you need help. Prayer shows that God is bigger than you and that he's stronger than you and that he's more capable than you. And I have never understood how some people, when asked, how can I pray for you, respond by saying, I'm good. That just really, that just really gets me. When I'm like, hey, how can I pray for you? Oh, no, no, I'm good, pastor. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, you're good. What do you mean you're good? You can't even take another breath if God didn't give it to you. Your heart won't even beat another beat if God doesn't sustain you. You can't accomplish one single thing without God. You're not good. You need prayer. So when I ask you, how can I pray for you? Don't say I'm good, Pastor. (laughs) You can't get up in the morning without God. You can't safely go to school or work without God's protection. You can't live without God's provision. So prayer is a way to show that we are needy. Prayer is a way to show that we are dependent. Prayer is a way to say we can't, but God can. Psalm 40, verse 17, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. When you come to God, come as humble a humble, broken person, totally dependent on him. When you come to God in prayer, acknowledge that he is your hope and that he is your help. James 4, 6 through 8 says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes who? The proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Submit to God. Uh, Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So let me just ask again, are you coming to God in this way? This is what it means to pray in Jesus' name. It means that you're praying in accordance with his will, that you're praying in a way that shows your utter dependence. And the last thing it means to pray in Jesus' name means that you pray in a way that magnifies the glory of God. Jesus says again in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. God is glorified in our prayer when we pray in Jesus' name. It acknowledges that we know that the Father sent the Son and that the Father answers prayers because we're praying in the Son's name. God doesn't answer prayers prayed in our name. It's not about us. It's about Him. People ask all the time, well, does God answer the prayers of a non-Christian? And I always say, well, God can do whatever he wants, but he never promises to answer a prayer of somebody who doesn't pray through Christ. Now, obviously, a non-Christian may be praying to come to Christ, and a non-Christian could pray anything, and if God wants to pray, he can. I'm just saying there's no guarantee. But for the Christian who's praying in accordance with God's will, Jesus says, I will answer that prayer. When you're praying in that way, 
Not unto us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. You see, our prayers are all about the glory of God. Of course God's going to glorify his name. If you're praying, God, would you glorify your name in this situation? The situation may change. It may not. It may get worse. It may get better, but God's going to be glorified in it. And that's part of what it means when he says, I will be glorified. I will answer that prayer because you have a greater prayer than just a physical prayer. Your prayer is a spiritual prayer. And your spiritual prayer is, God, glorify your name. Make me more like Christ. Help me to grow in my depth in you. He's going to answer that prayer. And he's going to draw you and draw you and draw you to where your prayers start to look a little bit more like Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 and Philippians 1, where you're praying in such a heavenly-minded way that you almost forgot about your physical request. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for physical things. We pray for sickness all the time. We pray for provision all the time. We pray for safety all the time. Like it, and I love it. But that better not be all you pray for, because you're praying for God to be glorified in you as you want to see Christ in him. And so do you want to see the Father today? Do you want to know the one who made you? Do you have a yearning to see the glory of God? Look no further than to Jesus Christ, because if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Open your eyes this morning. Take a full look at the majesty and at the wonder and at the beauty of Jesus Christ. Believe upon Christ today, and he will empower you to do great works. Learn to pray in his name, in accordance to his will, and you will see your prayers answered. You've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we are touched by the words of Christ in this text, so encouraging, so clear. Forgive us, Lord, of sometimes being like Philip, thinking we need to see something else, or somehow we have to see a theophany, or some type of presence of God outside of Christ in order to be energized, in order to be electrified in our walk with you. God, we want to see Christ, and as we see Christ, we see the Father, And I pray, Lord, that you would just work in our hearts this morning to show us that there's no greater revelation than the revelation of Jesus Christ in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God who lived and died for sinners and who was raised from the dead and who has ascended into heaven and who's coming back for his own. And as we think about those gospel truths, God, I pray that you would work in every heart today, that you would show us that part of the answer to whatever problem we're going through in our marriage, with our parenting, at work, in this world, with our sickness, is that we would see a greater focus on Christ and that we would have a greater love for Christ. And you would deepen our faith. And we do want to pray in accordance with your will. And we do want to pray in Jesus' name. And so we pray, God, that this day you would work among us and in us and through us, that we would see both your words and your works pointing us to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.